This is Stereoactive Presents. I'm your host, Jeremiah McVeigh, and in this episode, I'm joined by both Jacqueline Soler and Charles Henshaw as we continue to look back on movies released in 1999 and discuss how they stand up 20 years on. Second in this project is Fight Club, directed by David Fincher and starring Edward Norton, Brad Pitt, and Helena Bonham Carter. I'm here with both Jacqueline Soler and Charles Henshaw, our two regular contributors on movies. We recently began our second series of retrospective film segments, looking back on movies from 20 years ago in 1999, re-examining them in the context of today to discuss how they've stood up to the test of time. Thank you both for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. So far in the series, we've discussed American Beauty. Now the second film we're discussing is Fight Club. Based on the novel by Chuck Palahniuk, and directed by David Fincher, the film stars Edward Norton as a never-named narrator who's more or less fed up with his life and suffering from severe insomnia as he travels from place to place examining auto accidents. He begins to find cathartic solace through attending support groups for people suffering from various ailments and conditions, before his routine is interrupted by a woman named Marla Singer, played by Helena Bonham Carter, who is also attending these groups for less than honest purposes. Eventually, Norton's character meets Tyler Durden on one of his flights. Played by Brad Pitt, Durden seems to be as free of conformist societal pressures as the narrator is bound by them. Immediately after this seemingly chance encounter, the narrator's high-rise condo is destroyed by an explosion, leaving him with nowhere to turn but his new acquaintance. After an evening of bonding and trading personal philosophies, the two decide to have a fistfight free of animus just to see what it feels like. High on that feeling, they end up founding a club of men looking for the same experience. This balloons first into a secret underground network of similar clubs that extends to an unknown size, then to the beginning of Project Mayhem, in which men dedicate their entire lives to following Durden's call to upset the materialist corporate nature of the society around them. The film famously contains a twist, so here's a spoiler alert for anyone who may still be listening at this point who's never seen the movie, and we do suggest you watch it before listening to this discussion. Spoiler alert. Tyler Durden is actually a dissociated personality that the narrator assumes when he thinks he's asleep. Once this is revealed, the narrator seeks to stop the ultimate plan he himself has set into motion as Tyler Durden, meant to take out several financial institutions and setting people's debt back to zero. The movie premiered at the Venice Film Festival on September 10, 1999. It drew both praise and criticism, with many referencing A Clockwork Orange as a precedent case of a film that both portrays violence and, it was worried, could also inspire violence. In her review for the New York Times, Janet Maslin said, quote, Like Kevin Smith's dogma, Fight Club sounds offensive from afar. If watched sufficiently mindlessly, it might be mistaken for a dangerous endorsement of totalitarian tactics and super-violent nihilism in an all-out assault on society. But this is a much less gruesome film than Seven, and a notably more serious one. It means to explore the lure of violence in an even more dangerously regimented, dehumanized culture. That's a hard thing to illustrate this powerfully without, so to speak, stepping on a few toes. It opened commercially in the U.S. on October 15th, 
and came in first in box office rankings with just over $11 million. Despite this, the film was considered a bit of a financial disappointment by its studio, Fox. However, it was such a popular DVD release that it went on to become one of the studio's top-selling home media items and eventually turned a profit. Despite stray awards or nominations here or there, it wasn't really a big awards movie. It did receive a single Academy Award nomination for Best Sound Effects Editing, but it ultimately lost to The Matrix. So, Chuck and Jackie, did you see this when it came out, or had you seen it before watching it this time? I didn't see it in theaters, um, but I did watch it within the 20 years since it came out. (laughs) Uh, I remember I borrowed it from the library in like high school. Okay. Chuck? I didn't see it in theaters. Uh, I saw it on VHS tape. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) From a video store. And uh, I've seen it many times since, since then. Okay. And I saw it when it first came out in theaters. I've also watched it at least once or twice over the years before watching it again for this. So what was your take on it at the time that you first saw it? And if you can remember when it was, let us know when that was. I probably saw it when I was 14 or 15. And I remember thinking, wow, this movie's fucking awesome. Like I was so surprised by how good it was. But that was, you know, that was back then. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Ominous. Uh, I remember not being particularly conscious of my feelings and thoughts when I saw it. Uh, (laughs) But I do remember watching it and really enjoying it and watching it soon after, like the the next day or so, a friend of mine was uh was staying with me and I and I was like, Have you seen this? And he was like, No, and I was like, Let's watch it. So I I it obviously struck a chord because I I was down to watch it more, you know, more than once in a very short period of time. Yeah. And I think that last scene especially really I was like, wow, this is amazing. Then I like immediately went out and bought the Pixies album. Right, right. (laughs) That might have happened to me too. That was my introduction to the to the to Pixies. And that whole thing, uh, not that I've followed up on that or anything, but uh, yeah, I remember thinking that song was cool. Right. Uh, for me, it kind of came out of nowhere and it was unexpected. I was deep into a busy semester in college and I'd never, I don't think I'd even heard of the movie or knew that it was coming out just because I was just so in the school zone. But um, a friend invited me to go see it with them. And I, like I said, I hadn't really heard about it. And it turned out the only showing we could go to was at something like one in the morning at Union Square mm. because I think it was sold out mm. for the most part that weekend. And in retrospect, that seemed like the right time to see this movie <laughs> because it's like the middle of the night. The Definitely. movie's about insomnia. It's so dark. And I mean, it came out on my 20th birthday. So it did resonate with me in a certain way because I was like that age and, you know, where I was like, ah, oh, establishment, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> uh, but but like not good at like vocalizing that and not, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but I think I did also understand even at that time that it wasn't supposed to be like a textbook for how to live your life or something, which I think, unfortunately, some people ended up taking it as it was supposed to be sort of like a criticism, a critique, a satire of a way of living or a way of thinking um, or, or a way of taking things too far, you know? Uh, so that was my take on it at the time. So what is your take on it now? And do you think it holds up 20 years later? Do you think it's been influential? 
I think it's definitely been influential. I feel like people quote things from this movie still. Yeah. If I hear somebody say like some joke on like the first rule of this is we don't talk about it. The second rule, same fucking thing. <laughs> like it, it gets so old. Yeah. And like you still see people sharing the last shot on like Twitter, on Tumblr, just like they it connects with people even 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Even though I feel like some of it didn't age as well. Um, and I know like even when it came out, there were some things about it that when they had made it was okay. But then after some, some events, right. um, people weren't as receptive to it. Mm-hmm. The anti-establishment part of it went right over my head when I was younger. Had no concept that that's what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I was just, I don't know what I thought, honestly, because it seems so obvious now. But <laughs> but at the time, I don't know, I was too young. I wasn't thinking politically at all. Right. Um, I just was watching this movie that I thought was entertaining. And um, I resented a lot of young men or boys my age who like thought it was really cool and were like fuck yeah i remember being in a in a film class thing and they were showing a scene from seven and there was some like punk looking guy who was like fight club so much better and i was like (laughs) fuck you um i didn't say that to him but i thought it Uh, (laughs) so that yeah i that was annoying for a while where it seemed like like excessively macho people kind of took it as their their movie or whatever um when even i not being politically conscious was aware that it's like you know kind of like gordon gecko like you're not supposed to emulate the person but now uh i love it i love watching it i get more and more out of it re-watching it especially knowing the twist and i find it kind of amazing that it holds up so well knowing the twist because a lot of movies after you find out the twist they become kind of boring right and this uh has so much going on underneath that knowing the twist actually makes it a more i think a richer movie i don't know i'm way into fight club (laughs) yeah Uh, i have a whole laundry list of things here Mm -hmm. (laughs) that that, kind of rolls straight into the question of um things that you know didn't stand out to me at the time but do now because I think this movie has been, in some ways, unfortunately prescient. Um, but I, I, I definitely agree that it's been super influential, uh, sometimes not for the better, despite I think it being a good movie. I think people take the message the wrong way, which I think is what you're getting at, Chuck. Yeah, I mean, I don't know to what degree that like uh, influenced history or anything. There's a bunch of idiots sitting around being that way, but uh, no, I'm not saying it wrong. influenced history. But uh, there, there's something about this movie that like sometimes when people identify themselves as a Fight Club fan, you're like, oh, okay, I got to disengage from this conversation and go do something else. You know, like it, yeah. I'm not saying everybody, right? But but there's a certain type of person that like if they're into this, you're like, I don't want anything to do with this right now. Mm. Um. And to me, as we sort of discussed in our last 1999 movie segment, when we talked about American Beauty, uh, I thought that that one was like the ultimate pre Y2K, pre 9-11 baby boomer movie. And I think this sort of is paired with that in a way as the ultimate uh, pre Y2K, 9-11 Gen X movie of, of just sort of like describing and portraying the disaffected uh, feelings of that generation coming up after the baby boomers and sort of, you know, 
being disillusioned with the world and and thinking like, why aren't we getting the same sort of benefits out of this societal contract that the last generation seemed to get or seems to think they got? I feel like they share the same themes about like anti-consumerism. Sure. Because you know like how Kevin Spacey's character in American Beauty is like, like, it's just a couch. Like, why do we need all this stuff? Right. And so like this plays off the same idea where he like, he buys all the stuff from Ikea and then blows it up. Yeah. I think the difference, what I realized thinking about them more after watching this one is I think American Beauty to me comes off as self-pitying. Where it's like, oh, I bought into this thing and what an idiot I am. And like, oh, I'm, like I got I got sold a bill of goods or something. Whereas Fight Club is more like feel sold out. Like they're like, why did you make us go this way? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, like you told us this is the way to live our lives. And we tried that and it sucks. We don't like this. We don't want to be like you. Um, so it, it's it's more like critical than self-pitying. So it's like it, it deals with the same ideas, but. The approach is yeah. different. Well, I think it's generational. I think right. I think they're I think they really like, are movies representing two different generational takes on the moment. Right, because they both were about to get fired, and they're like, you know what? I'll, yeah. I have all the shit that I can blackmail you with. So right. give me what I want, and right. I'll right. go peacefully. Yeah, it's. It, I think they both see the American dream is broken, basically. But it's it's one is like <sighs> grappling with like how did we fuck this up. And the other is grappling with, like, how did they fuck this up for us? Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. There's also, I think, a, a, there's obviously a, a sense of, you know, we were all going to be told that we were going to be movie stars and rock gods, you know, but we won't, which I always found really ironic coming from Brad Pitt. But, uh, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think that that's um, And he says it's like Jared maybe. Leto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jared Leto um, does both. But there's also an even like larger kind of just like general anti any kind of establishment like uh and a and a like return to nature kind of fetishism sort of thing like mm-hmm. where before he leaves he's talking about when not what the vision i see is you know wearing leather clothes that you will never that you will wear for the rest of your life and uh, you know, trees or whatever he says, like growing in parking lots and this kind of sense of like tearing all of this constructed life down and letting in like real life. Right. And then I also picked up on this viewing where he says, soap, the yardstick of civilization, (laughs) Uh, which I thought was such an interesting way to kind of say that, you know, the thing that separates us from animals is, is cleanliness and neatness and, uh, and Ed Norton's, apartment is just like a symbol of neatness it's you know him trying to replicate the perfection of the ikea catalog uh and um so i think it goes even beyond that to like a a a deep like return to nature radicalism that kind of transcends just the time period in which it was made i find yeah but at, at the same time whereas i am of the belief that I'm sorry, I'm going to keep going back to American Beauty, but where where I don't think that movie can, could have been made a couple years later, I mm-hmm. definitely don't think this one could have been. Uh, no. And I think Jackie was alluding maybe to this earlier. The, the This movie was made before the Columbine yeah. shooting and then came out after it. There was actually discussion about whether to take that scene out and Fincher ended up keeping it in. Uh, but what I was reading about it 
was that when they tested the movie and, you know, like Columbine hadn't happened, people laughed a lot at the scene where he threatens his boss mm-hmm. by saying, like, right. I'm going to come in here with a gun and just basically kill everyone, right. paraphrasing. But after the movie actually came out, the scene did not test in the same way at all. It's a big laughing scene before and then no one laughed afterwards. I also think like watching it after September 11th, seeing a bunch of buildings fall down and mm-hmm. seeing people become basically domestic terrorists is striking. It's it's kind of funny to see it as um, how that changed things more than like Oklahoma City or something where actually maybe that's a little closer to what these guys are doing if you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Right. But that didn't have the same sort of like cultural impact, I guess. And we're still kind of grappling with those things, I think, of who gets considered a terrorist. You know, how much does that depend on the color of your skin? Right. Where, where, what zip I mean, code? He defines or, himself as a terrorist. Right. When he goes to the police station. He says, I'm the leader of a terrorist organization. Sure. But, but, but somehow this was still seen as fantasy, even though like there had been yeah. domestic terrorism bombings in this country. It know? is fantasy, though, yeah. I think. Sure. I, no, I Still, agree with that. Yeah. Like, th- this is the thing. Like, I think this touches on the, all that stuff and it's provocative for those reasons. Right. And certain people, I think a lot of people take the wrong messages from it because they take it as a way of life to to try to um, emulate, as you were saying about Gordon Gecko. But right. you're not supposed to <laughs> agree with it all. You're supposed to be like, oh, this is an interesting thesis, but I don't know about your tactics and I, I guess my thing with the people i was referring to were like 15 year old guys well uh, i know yeah so but they but they're gonna find any like extreme macho shit right. like interesting and my i would hope they would kind of grow out of it and uh and also i don't think any of them were like forming fight clubs or like project mayhems sure, or sure. anything like that <laughs> but okay so I, I have two things on that i think that this belongs to like a long canon of angry young man stories mm-hmm. like there's catcher in the rye even taxi driver or a clockwork orange which we mm-hmm. mentioned before where all of those i think have been taken out of context by people and used as the justification for a mindset of theirs that they're not supposed to be taking from it necessarily a portrayal is not an endorsement you know i always think that's important to remember with a story like this right that said i do think in some ways the movie was prescient because it makes me think about two things. One one is less insidious. Uh, him going to all the support groups and getting a catharsis out of that really reminded me of what would really become popular in the years after that of, of reality television and maybe even like mm. gossip journalism, which was already pretty prevalent by then. But that was something I thought of on this viewing. But I, it's hard for me to not watch this now and not think of the alt-right which I know I'm guilty of bringing that up a mm-hmm. lot, but I think that those are the people who even past the age of 15 into their twenties, into their thirties, still think that this is a viable form of living their life. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a parallel there in some way. I think there's certain people who saw movies like fight club and V for vendetta and thought <laughs> like, we're going to just cause chaos. And that is a thing to do in the world that is reasonable in some way. This was an issue at the time, and it's it's still an issue now, and it's maybe even more an issue now, but I, I hesitate to put a film anywhere close to people's reasons for being a certain way. I'm not trying to criticize the movie for it. Right, right. I'm saying that certain people are apparently too immature to see certain movies and, and 
recognize portrayal versus endorsement. Right. You know, because I don't think this movie says like go out and destroy credit card companies. No. That, it, but it shows you that. I'm not trying to say this movie caused that stuff. I think right. people have responsibility for their own actions. If you watch this movie and you think it's a way to live your life, you're a fucking idiot. I'm not, I'm not blaming the movie. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting how their motivation to blow up all the credit card companies is to like reset everything back to zero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like such a simplistic way of doing it by just like blowing them up right. as if like they don't have backups anywhere else <laughs> or something, you know, like all the information that they have. Um, and I know that Mr. Robot takes this idea, but then does it in a more refined way. And then they explore how the world is after right. it happens because they like hack into all the credit card companies and erase everything. They erase not only data, but all the all of their backups. So like literally there's no information about anyone and what their debts are and what like they what they owe to whom. And and I thought like they took that idea that Fight Club wanted to do and then explore that more in right. a more, I guess, intellectual way. Whereas this one is more about uh, the stuff leading up to it rather than that idea particularly, like exploring what would happen if that were to happen. Do right. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this movie is interested in the chaos, whereas right. that show is interested in the chaos and the fallout. Yeah, exactly. Like this movie doesn't really care so much about the fallout. Mm. I mean, Which I think a, is fair. I'm not a, saying yeah, it needs about to. radicalism. Right. Yeah. I think you can apply it to, I mean, the alt-right's one version. There's also like a, a radicalism on the a total other side and like an, an extreme anti-capitalism yeah. and right. a desire yeah. to, you know, just be rid of all things that represent corporations and, uh, yeah, like just eliminate debt, uh, <laughs> eliminate mm. money. <laughs> yeah. Know, like, I, mean, I mean, I think uh, you could connect it even to a much more reasonable tactic that's being discussed a lot today of like wiping out student loan debt. Right. right. You know, like there are a lot of people who think that's super unfair. I don't agree with those people. Mm-hmm. I can intellectually understand it, but that's like a real world using the system way of achieving something that is somewhat similar to what they're talking about in this movie. Right. And mm-hmm. to me, like a movie like this coming around and proposing a plot such as this it's not saying like you should do this. It's saying like, why are we talking about this as a problem? This is something that needs action. It's not saying like go out and blow shit up. It's right. saying that the system needs some work. Yeah. The reason that the politics, I think, went over my head when I was younger and even now watching the movie and I've seen the movie a lot and I've listened to the commentaries and like mm-hmm. understood like the the thinking behind the people who made it. And I'm not sure the movie says anything specific i think it throws a lot of ideas at you and it kind of it kind of pulls a thread from an angst that is um particularly male and uh that i don't think is unique to the 90s uh and kind of speaks to like when you kind of leave it unchecked and you just like roll with it this is kind of something that could have it as a total like fantasy concept of just like extremism. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's all kind of, you know, this like psychology of like, you know, my daddy left me and shit like that. Yeah, no, um, I, I totally agree with you on yeah. that. That is partially why I brought up Catcher in the Rye, mm-hmm. Taxi Driver and things like that, because I do think that this is something that has been with us for a long time. This is just the 1999 version of that story that right. was in the zeitgeist, I guess. Yeah. I do think it taps into something that has always been with us 
and that these days gets called like toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. I don't think that term was around yet in 99 or at in least not ways. popularized. See, I think the thing that's cool about it, and I think it's something that Janet Maslin was pointing out, it's something that I think people misunderstood about the movie then and, and maybe even now is that it's for every instance that you can show of like the toxic masculinity, you can also show this like underpining of uh, homosexuality, like men loving men. And then Fincher pointed out that, you know, people kept asking about the homosexual undertones. And he was like, well, if you go from the fact that they're the same person, then it's really about self-love. Right, (laughs) right, sure, sure. And so there's, I think the, my thing is just always to try and like, because it's very easy to simplify the movie. And I think it's like fucking deep as all get out. And I think it's always good to like keep pulling all those things again i agree with you i think completely Mm -hmm. i'm talking about the movie as the impact it's had on society which i I think not due to anything that the movie does Mm -hmm. i think a lot of people took the movie the wrong way and ran with just the first part of that right and they didn't see deeper any of the underlying things that that are going on in the movie or didn't choose to look deeper didn't care or whatever yeah but i think a lot of people saw this movie and just was like oh cool fighting yeah. And, and and some people saw it and were like, "This is disgusting." Yeah, this fighting. Yeah, <laughs> you know, letting people criticize it who also didn't get it. Right. I I think it's like a, a very well crafted, entertaining, thought provoking movie. Mm-hmm. I understand criticisms of it. I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but I think there's room for them. Mm-hmm. I understand them. Like I said, uh, Jackie, I, I thought before uh, from the way you ended what you said about like your take on it at the time. It sounded like you were alluding to maybe now you don't like it as much. Is that true? I mean, I just back then I thought it was like the perfect movie, but now looking at it, there's some problematic things about it. So what would so you say? So it's not like it's not like little things. Like there's the thing about like representation. There's not. There's it's mostly about white men yeah. and like their place in society and how society curbs what it means to be a man. You know, like that's why they like start the fight clubs to get out all this aggression that they pent like they pent up because of. Uh, because they're not allowed to express it the way that they want. But it's like, like I feel like you only see like one black guy. And oh, yeah, he like beats the shit out of Edward Norton. Like right. he, he like slams yeah. his head on the. I think the, you see a couple. Yeah, there's the a couple, but none of them are. Yeah, they're not and then, characters. And like yeah. the only Asian guy you see is that, that dude who he like completely humiliates. Where he's like, you want to be a veterinarian? Remember like, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And yeah. so like that's also like a problem how before... Uh, Asian men were only used to be like comic relief or right. to just be like this emasculated guy on right. screen. Little things like that. And then things like that back then I thought was like so cool. If I watch it now, I'm kind of like, okay. It's like, you know what I mean? But I feel like that's just because of time and like watching ma- so many movies since then right. and being like, s- sense that it's just like trying to be cool. Yeah. Mm. But some but some things like like kind of made me roll my eyes a little bit. Like some of the lines that, that were like overwritten, I felt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and then also like that now after like 9-11 and Columbine and all the mass shootings that has happened since then, like there's so many that happen like every other week it feels like so um i guess stuff like that like it wouldn't fly now yeah what do you mean by that what well, that pe- like that like it wouldn't fly like people would be like this is insensitive i guess that mm-hmm. you would make a joke about mass shooting after when it's like a big problem today i don't know mm-hmm. i think it would have at least been 
handled differently in the right. movie. Like the 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 language of the scene right. would have probably been different. Though I don't know, the approach just like, would have been different. Yeah, it sounds like Fincher would have cut it, but he could. He felt he couldn't because it leads into the Marla right uh, breast cancer scare scene. Right. Uh, yeah. I think it's important to remember, for me at least, for, as much as people liked it and there was like a big fan swell, there were people who were pissed at <laughs> yeah. this movie. I mean, yeah. hated it and thought it was so irresponsible and despite, I mean, Rosie O'Donnell was on like a oh, yeah, <laughs> Right, right. She was, she was ready to, you know, she wanted all this movie to just be wiped off the face of the earth. Um, so I think that it's as much as like it would be controversial now, it was controversial then too. Yeah. Right. Um, no, I think that's totally fair. But um, I mean, all in all, I still think it's a good movie. Um, just has flaws, right? Compared to back then, when I thought it was like immaculate or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I one of my notes in here, getting to the representation thing. I mean, I don't know how you solve this in this movie about this topic, but my note is just Bechdel test equals yikes. Oh, it, right, there's one woman in this whole movie, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, some 1999 zeitgeist stuff that I just wanted to like point out. Um, there, there's this, the thing already about American beauty and this anti-authority parallel between the two movies and two scenes in particular where they confront their boss in a threatening way. Um, and they see the American dream is broken. I think both films do. Then 1999 was also a year of a couple of like big historic twists in movies because of the sixth sense was that year. So was there something about the, coming of the new millennium or something that like <laughs> really had people set up to connect with a twist in a movie. That's something I wonder about. And then the, the shooting up of a public place also I think connects with um, the matrix. And I know that movie, it came out like shortly before Columbine. And we're going to be talking about that movie in the coming weeks at some point. And it took a lot of flack. People blamed that movie for Columbine and the whole trench coat mafia oh, thing right. of that. So it's just interesting to me that I'm not saying that other years don't have this, but 1999, maybe it's just so far away at this point that it's easier to examine. There were certain things that were just like being sort of mirrored throughout culture and throughout movies in particular mm -hmm. and mind for parallel, thinking. whatever. Yeah. Parallel <laughs> thinking. Yeah. Another thing about the matrix, and this is a little trivia thing, but the sex scene between Brad Pitt and Helena Bonham Carter that use the same technique as they did for the bullet right, right. effects in yeah. The Matrix, which I thought was funny. Yeah. Uh, was there anything else about the movie that stood out to you on this watch that we haven't talked about? Watching it again while knowing the ending, it was like, so, they make it so obvious that he's Tyler Durden. And I thought that was so funny because it's not like a little hint here and there. It's like really in your face. But when I watched it, it I didn't realize until, you know, when he has the realization. I think it's the last thing anyone thinks is yeah. possible. So they're <laughs> not really looking for it. <laughs> yeah, but they make like they, yeah. all the things that they hint to it, it's like very big neon right. signs let's move on Let, let's talk about the major people involved in the film we'll go through one by one david fincher edward norton brad pitt helena bottom carter and then if you guys want to add anyone else in we can so david fincher i think he was already well on the rise but this helped to cement him as a major director next level yeah what is he up to right i now? love david fincher yes. yeah <laughs> he's doing those tv shows I... with mindhunter Oh, is he still doing that? They're doing another this season, season. taking okay. their sweet-ass time. But cool. Yeah. I know he likes all those, those one-shots, like, so you know, in the opening where they go through the brain and right, then right. out his eye 
or no, his forehead. It's out the the a pore in his forehead. Oh, yeah, his eyebrows. I always yeah. thought it was, like it was like along the gun barrel or something. No, well, it goes, it goes down. Yeah, it goes okay. down the the face and then down the gun barrel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but I, I remember like he used that in Panic Room where they were like mm-hmm. going through the whole house yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Apparently he was an effects guy for like he worked in an effects department uh, at ILM for a while. So I think that's before music videos because that's kind of what before during I don't yeah I somebody said that on a commentary like he worked at ILM and I was like oh that makes so much sense (laughs) Uh, like he's one of the top directors right now yeah I think I mean he's the big reason I love this movie yeah I think if anybody else made this movie I would not be as into it. But it's, I think what I really love is the way that he does blend all that stuff. Yeah. And he really goes, he swings for the fences in this one too. Mm -hmm. Just like all the different styles and effects and camera tricks and all that shit. Right. And then Edward Norton, he had recently been nominated for supporting actor for Primal Fear. He'd been in Mm -hmm. a couple of high profile things. Oh, he'd also been nominated for American History X uh, two years before. But I think this movie really raises his profile quite a bit because everything before that was either supporting or independent. Right. Right. This was like sort of his upgrade to the next tier of Hollywood. And I actually wonder if it's his probably most rewatched movie of, of his filmography. I couldn't. I looked yeah. through and I couldn't see anything else that I thought would be. Yeah, either that or American History X. I think people, that has a pretty loyal fan base, also. But I, I th- probably like a smaller one. I would think. I could be Same wrong. People. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, okay, then Brad Pitt. He, he never went anywhere. Um, yeah. Who is he? <laughs> uh, so what interesting to remember that this was considered something of a comeback for him after Meet Joe Black kind of bombed spectacularly, even though that. That one scene from that movie pops up every few years because people forget it exists. Where he gets hit by a couple of cars and bounces around. (laughs) Uh, Uh, This is a little side note. But I remember that he was married to Jennifer Aniston at the time Fight Club came out. And I remember when she was on SNL. And then she did that. She's like, oh, I haven't seen Fight Club yet. But then they reenact like she's like fighting the whole cast of SNL. Oh, really? We were so funny. We talked about the first rule of Fight Club, second rule of Fight Club. The hit me thing was huge. I mean, it was like people did that all the time. You know, like hit me, hit me. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Like that whole thing was... That's true. Massive. Yeah, I remember like she like grabbed some from right. the hair and like pulled them. <laughs> yeah, and she did her down own little table. <laughs> intro. Right. One interesting thing: um, Russell Crowe is actually considered for Tyler Durden, but the studio wanted more star power. And at that time, of course, I mean, I think still it's one of the few Brad times Pitt, that, uh, that worked out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of integral to the role working in a way. Yeah. Like you want somebody who exudes star power so that the second he comes on screen, right. you're like, there's something about this guy. Even though he right. seems like kind of a dick. You look like I want to look. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like you want to look like Brad Pitt, look like right. not Russell Crowe. Right. Like you wanna, it was so intense. <laughs> right. No, it was perfect. He's yeah. perfect. Uh, then Helena Bonham Carter, she'd just been nominated for an Oscar a couple years before for The Wings of the Dove. But I, I think that this similar to Norton was kind of a step up for her in one way in terms of the Hollywood thing. Mm -hmm. But in another way, I think in terms of the material and the character, it's, you could argue that it's a step down because it's, it's not a well-serviced character. Like I think the character is what it needs to be in the story, Mm -hmm. but it's not like a glamorous role. You know, we loves that though. Sure. Uh, Well, that's another thing. Is this like kind of the start of her, this is like before she gets into the Tim Burton zone right you know and i feel like this is like the prototype of what she does for him in his run of movies with her of like the and kind I, of like strong out looking right, right. 
I'm glad that Reese Witherspoon turned it down. Oh, was she? They wanted to use uh, her. Because, it was like the finalists were her, Helena Bottom Carter, uh, and Reese Witherspoon. And the studio wanted to go with Reese Witherspoon because she was the bigger name. Mm-hmm. But she was Reese was like, this movie's too dark for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Which, I mean, she wasn't that big a name yet. She'd done Election. She was going to be an American psycho in a very well, supporting no one role knew next year. Helena you know? Bonham Carter in the States as much, I think. Right. Like she was in these uh, these British. costume dramas yeah, exactly. in, in, you know, across the pond. Reese Witherspoon would have played her so differently. <laughs> no, yeah. I think the casting's perfect. Oh, one thing that was interesting was David Fincher talked about uh, her intro, which I think is a great intro for character, um, particularly that slow-mo shot of her smoking. And he's like, her, as a goth version of a Tony Scott femme, he says. <laughs> this also helps keep bringing up Tony Scott yeah, every time. Uh, <laughs> and um, Oh, and the Marla Singer was, as much as there were men who were kind of like into Fight Club, I also, there were young young girls too who I think kind of emulated the kind of fuck you attitude of Marla Singer and I specifically remember when everyone had AIM profiles yeah some girl I knew I don't even remember who had uh, had uh, the condom is the glass slipper of our generation written <laughs> on her AIM profile <laughs> so there was Amazing. sort of like I think I think the film also fed into my experience as a teen and like, you know, teens love that shit. Oh, like right. they, angsty all shit. that angsty, yeah, like, exactly. you know, screw you and like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want sort of vibe. <laughs> and, you know, Brad Pitt was it for the guys and Helena Baum Carter was it for the girls. Yeah. And I, and I do think that, you know, <laughs> right. she brought, and she brought that in a way that, very unique to her. Yeah. I don't think another, certainly not Reese Witherspoon would have. <laughs> she just can't work with Fincher. She wanted to be in Gone Girl and Fincher was like, nope. <laughs> really? <laughs> Is that yeah. true? I mean, she produced it, but, and she wanted to play the lead and Fincher was like, I just don't see it. And she's like, all right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Any other people you want to go over? Meatloaf. Uh, Meatloaf. Yeah, what happened to him? <laughs> Uh, Jeff Cronin with a cinematographer is uh, the son of Jordan Cronin with who shot Blade Runner. Oh, Oh, shit. I did not know that. So you can kind of see a little bit of the influence in there. Sure. So do you think the movie will continue to stand the test of time or not? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That, you know, first rule fight club line is so iconic. And also, you know, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Um, I feel like a lot of it, that even though it's particular to that time, there are things about it that people can still connect to. And especially like Chuck said, with the teenagers and and, and thinking like, you know, fuck off society. We're better than that. And we want to go back to this idea before capitalism, you know, this this way of living before capitalism. Right. There's lines in it that I really do like just for like the lyricism of it, where he's like, you know, we we work jobs we hate to buy shit we don't need and stuff right. like that. Yeah. yeah. I kind of, I, I don't identify with the philosophy at all. I like having stuff, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I enjoy the way it's presented in a lot of ways. And, and um, I'm not sure if it'll, I, I hope it does. It also looking back the DVD is just like jam full of special features on how they made this movie. And it's, it's such a creative, uh, you know, kaleidoscope. There's just so much going on. I hope people look at it from that perspective as time goes on. Because right. also I realize, you know, they're shooting it on film, which apparently is part of the reason it's so dark uh, is there was like a thing in the transfer uh, that made it a little grainier, a little darker than maybe they were even going for. Mm-hmm. 
but it, it is kinda, very dark. That, yeah. Watching it on a on an HD TV, I was uh, I was kind of struck by that. Yeah. I didn't remember that because this was probably my first time watching it that way. Actually. Right. And I think they wanted they wanted it to be dark, but I I think it got a little more than they were going for. But part of that's in that the way that they were making movies then they don't make movies like that now. Right. And uh, so you know I hope for that from that point people keep watching it and keep uh, like studying it because there's a lot there to right. look into. Yeah, I, I agree that I, th- I think it will stand the test of time and probably should um, to kind of, I think, <laughs> sum up what you guys just said. I'm going to go back to American Beauty and kind of repeat what I said before. I think where that movie was maybe self-pitying and navel-gazing, I think that this one actually has a lot more to say about the time that it was made in and what was going to come after. I think for that reason, that's why it stood the test of time better. And I think as long as we live in a world that is kind of like what Jackie was saying about questioning capitalism, I think basically until like we solve every problem we have in this society, <laughs> this movie is going to resonate with some people. You know? Yeah, because I mean, you still have TV shows and movies still exploring this idea today. So right. it's still yeah. obviously a problem in society. I think the biggest threat to it this, will be. this yeah. movie is Bernie Sanders' agenda. <laughs> Universal basic income, Medicare for all, everybody will be happy. No one will have a want in the world, and this will not make any sense to them. You communists. <laughs> I think any any civilization will be a threat to this movie's agenda. Because <laughs> like, the <laughs> ultimate thing it wants to do is just destroy everything. Right. Just like return it to total. Well, well that, that's what I'm, I'm saying. The opposite of that, though. I think if, right. if they solve all the woes of society and make a perfect society, then you, this movie won't make any sense. Like no, it, it will way. because we'll all be living in IKEA homes. <laughs> but we'll be all... happy about it because we have universal basic income. We won't and... be. We'll we'll be uh, you know buying okay, shit. So so <laughs> so, <laughs> so UBI mean. should really be universal basic IKEA. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. That's what he really means. We want He's in cahoots. The... Cahoots. With the okay. uh, what is your favorite scene or element of craft or anything like that about the movie? I think everything they they did about hinting that he is the same person that was really clever, and I like how they like hid Tyler throughout the movie. You know, and right, they, yeah. like, have like frame, mm-hmm. uh, frames of him everywhere. Mm-hmm. I like. The way some things were very stylistic, like shot stylistically, like the, the sex scene or the opening scene, that ending scene will always be great to me. Mm-hmm. It's like you met me at a really weird time in my life. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that ending was interesting that it that he kind of won but lost or whatever. Like he didn't get a chance to thwart yeah. his plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just kind of like Oh well, all right. Uh, <laughs> that'll yeah. What do you think like, the next scene is? At least I got rid of know. Brad Pitt. I guess right. Yeah, I I don't know. I, it kind of is he go to jail? Does he go on the run? What's what's the next? Mm-hmm. Well, he's got to fix the bullet hole in his face. You, you know, there um, is a Fight Club too that came out. What? I think just as a graphic novel, and really? but but I think it's by Paul Polnick. Is it? Does it continue the story? I haven't read it. I couldn't tell you. Maybe maybe that's something to look I don't, into. <laughs> Um, and, and I feel other... like he would go to jail because he told that officer everything. But that they're he all did. in it together, Expe- man. Well, that one dude, the chief dude. You think he'll be he's like? He's gonna be overcome by every. He's created an <laughs> army of people that are all. 
I think my favorite scene was the I am Robert Paulson scene oh, yeah. in retrospect. It like, is great. Because uh, I think that's sort of the off ramp from it being a celebration of this stuff. Right. Because it, that's where you realize, oh, these guys are fucking idiots. You know, or like they'll it's just listen, would, they'll take yeah. anything as a message. And I, it made me think of conspiracy theorists yes. in a way of yes. how they can just whatever you throw at them in terms of fact or reason or anything, they will just incorporate the opposite of that into their argument somehow and into their wrong-headed view of the world. And you think that it's a coincidence that this movie <laughs> ends with buildings falling down then only a couple of years later in 9-11 <laughs> right. and it's an anti-capitalist movie and the CIA? Yeah, well, you know, I, I do remember that in the, I believe, weeks after September 11th, there was talk of how, um, I don't know if it was the new then Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Defense or who it was, but they invited a lot of Hollywood filmmakers to come in. Right, right. And one of them was David Fincher. I mm-hmm. think because of this movie, they, they were basically like, we want you to think up any bad shit that could happen uh, so that we can like try to think through ways to fend it off. Because <laughs> they were basically you know, admitting they were taken by surprise, I guess, yeah. in a way, by them flying planes into buildings. By themselves, because they did it. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so I, I just think that's an interesting footnote which is weird too because it's not like fincher wrote that part but they really should be calling chuck palanek <laughs> maybe yeah. they did I don't <laughs> or know. jim ools but I, I think the idea though is they were calling in special effects people and right. people who've directed special effects and and being like you guys think about this all day long sometimes of like how can we make some spectacular explosion or catastrophe right and we just need somebody from the outside to come and tell us about something we haven't thought of yet yeah you know Mm -hmm. so i think he was a fair person to call for that sure i like a lot of the little stuff i think there's no one scene or one but just little thing like the marla the push in slow motion push in of her smoking when you kind of first see that uh, her in the back of the room a lot of the trailer moments i think are some of the best moments where He's, all the guys are getting ready and then they gentlemen and it whips to him and he's like welcome to fight club like that just the little camera angles like that the way the movie just like moves it starts and it doesn't stop until it's over you know? right all right thank you both thank, thank you. you Thank you for listening to Stereoactive Presents, and thank you to our guest, Jacqueline Solar. The music in this podcast is composed by Hansdale Sue. My name is Jeremiah Lee McVeigh. If you like what you hear in this show, please rate and review it in Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that allows that. Doing so helps us to expand our audience, and it is much appreciated. And please follow us wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Every little bit helps, and again, it is truly appreciated. You can also get in touch with us at stereoactivemedia at gmail.com. And you can find more information about this show and everything else the Stereoactive Media is involved with at stereoactivemedia.com. Podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.